Morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Good to be with you. Uh, glad you're here. I was worried that if the Mariners had won, there would be no one here because it'd be a game at noon. So, um, cups half full. Here you are. And we'll have time together and it'll be good. Although, yesterday, uh, well, we just have to go on. We'll just go on. Yeah. I want to open with a story and then we'll get into the text. We're in a series on reconciliation, predominantly using the book of Acts as a, a jumping off point to understand the work that God desires to do in the world, particularly through God's people in making us people of reconciliation. And so I'm going to open with a little story to show you why this matters. Then we'll pray. Then we'll get into the text in Acts 10. The story comes from this summer. I was uh, privileged to speak on the East Coast at a conference and also privileged during my week there to speak to the summer staff who are predominantly 18 to 25 years in age and summer staff predominantly white but also in the room, some people of color. I had chosen to speak on fear because that is a fear and anxiety is a big theme among an 18 to 25 constituency these days. So I'm speaking on fear, and I thought, well, I'll open with a little sharing question. So I said, what are you afraid of? And then people began to give answers, and the answers reflected the demographic of the room. I'm afraid I won't get into Columbia. I really want to go to Columbia. I applied there in New York City. I'm afraid my SAT scores are too low. I'm afraid I won't get to go to Europe because of COVID. And so I'm hearing those kind of answers. And there's a young black man uh, sitting in the second row, very polite and quiet. And I said, how about you? What are you afraid of? He says, I'm afraid uh, when I walk home from school, I'm going to get shot and killed by either a gang member or a policeman. Oh, where do you live? Uh, inner city, New York. And he named the neighborhood. And, you know, people then continued to, you know, give answers around the room. But I was undone. I was like, the distance between his answer and every other answer in the room is representative of why we need to have this conversation. And here's the deal. Many of us in the room are uh, sympathetic with the answer of that young black man. Many of us feel for that young black man, but we would also hasten to say, not my, it's not my problem, there's nothing I can do because I'm not racist in it, so why are we having this conversation? Here's the thing. The church has a calling not just you as an individual, we as a people have a calling. And there's, there's two matters in which our calling is intended to affect that young man's story. First of all, we're called as a community always to offer an alternative that looks more like shalom than the domination model, that looks more like the kingdom of God than the, than the warring kings of this world. And so we as a church need to purpose that this becomes a place that is safe where someone made in the image of God regardless of skin color or other matters, finds a place of safety. That's the first thing. We're an alternative community uh, without walls, in a sense. Second, we're called to like a prophetic voice toward the larger culture. We're called to be a prophetic voice of the culture. This is what Jesus meant when he, when he said, you're the light of the world. He meant, hey, you're the light. So you're showing the world God's heart for the world. That's our intent. And so when we're silent, um, we're not able to be a prophetic voice. So, so we're called to this kind of alternative community prophetic voice thing. And 
in that, we're called to move from where we are today, both individually and collectively, to a, a, a space that's more spacious than present. And this is what we're going to talk about today. So I'll invite you to pray with me, and then we'll get into the text. Father, thanks that thanks so much that we have these moments. It's good to be together, good to um, listen for your voice. We invite you to speak to us now and shape us in order that we might more accurately represent your heart, not only in our daily living personally, but also as a community. And we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts 10, and uh, many of you, if you grew up in the church, know this story. It's the story of, there's kind of two main players in the story, Cornelius and Apostle Peter. And, And so we'll look at them. But before we get into the details of this, what I call a two-act play, first, we have to look at the context. This story unfolds in the book of Acts, and Acts was written for a reason. In Acts 1, Jesus said to the disciples, look, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you then will become like a testimony. You'll be a witness that'll change lives. Where? It spirals out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, the south, Samaria in the north, and then on to the other parts of the world. And so if the spiral, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Seattle. And here we are 2,000 years later, which is just stunning to me. It's really amazing that we're here carrying on a tradition of faith that was passed down to us from generation to generation. So uh, someone witnessed us, and now the story continues to unfold, right? So in this story, in order for that prophecy of Jesus to be fulfilled, all along the way, God is going to have to, you know, break down dividing walls between, you know, cultures and tribes. That's, that will have to happen if this witness is going to ever extend beyond Jerusalem, right? So that's what is happening in the book of Acts, particularly from chapter 10, essentially up through about chapter 15 or 16, the 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 walls are being challenged, right? You're, you're in a cultural worldview, a tribe. I'm in a tribe. I have the gospel. I bring the gospel to you. The gospel is malleable enough. You receive it, but you're still in your culture. I go home and my friends say to me, what are you doing? They need to become what? Are you ready? Two words like us, to receive the gospel. And so that's kind of what's going on in Acts 10. And Peter has that assumption. Of course, everybody has to become like me because I'm, I'm in the kind of full fruition of Judaism, which is Christ. Now, I'm a Christian. With the Jewish law, this is the definite article, expression of the faith, done, Right? So that's the, that's the setting. And then two dreams happen, but we'll get into those in a minute. Before that, understand that the two actors here in the, in the uh, story couldn't be further apart. Uh, Cornelius is, is a centurion. Uh, Peter is a fisherman. And so if cultural disparity creates distance, these guys are light years apart. Why? Here's the centurion. Roman, Gentile, 
part of the oppressing empire. He's the oppressor, wealthy, literate, and usually viewed by Jews on a spectrum somewhere between dismissive and disparaging, right? So that's, you know, over here in this corner, we got, you know, the centurion, Cornelius. Then here's Peter the fisherman, Jewish, not Gentile, victim, like he's the oppressed, he's the oppressor, living on subsistence, subsistence wages, uh, wealthy, taxed, taxer, typically not literate, highly educated. And in Peter's case, Peter was also known as Simon the Zealot, and zealots were a political party, essentially. And if they were a contemporary party, they'd be a party with the militia storming the Capitol on January 6th to overturn the government. That's what they'd be. They were, they were like, by any means necessary, we're going to destroy Rome. That was, those were the zealots. Peter's part of that clan, right? So here's Peter, and, and he hates his oppressors. And who's the oppressor? The guy in the story. That sets the table for what I think is a very interesting story. Because if we try and contemporize this and think about, okay, what would be analogous in this culture now? It would be like, uh, if, it's, if it's Rwanda, here's a 1994, here's a Hutu, here's a Tutsi. And now they're going to reconcile. If it's Germany 1942, here's a, a prison camp guard in Dachau, and here's a Jew or gypsy, or homosexual, or, or pastor, name it. <laughs> He's the enemy, though, right? Uh, if, it's, if, it's, um, a, if it's the South, it could be a, a, a black pastor and a Klan member. If, if it's today, it could be a member of the Gay Christian Network and a neo-Calvinist pastor. It could be any number of things where everyone on both sides is confident that side is wrong. Everybody's confident. That's kind of the story here. And it's kind of human nature. And as we'll see, to some extent, it's our story as well. So the reconciling part of the gospel is that God brings these two together, right? So if you follow me so far, hopefully you're like this. Well, how does God do that? And then I'm like this. I'm glad you asked. This is why we're here. Now we're going to have a Bible study to see how God does it. So, two acts. And in the first act, what we see is Peter's existing paradigm needs to be shattered. So does Cornelius. So, they both have dreams in Acts 10. So, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 10. Or a phone, you want to turn to Acts 10 that way. Here's what happens. Uh, Cornelius has a vision and God says to him in verse 4, your prayers have been answered. Send some men to Joppa and go get Simon called Peter. He's staying at a tanner's house. Meanwhile, so now guys are going to Joppa to get Peter. Meanwhile, Peter goes up on the top of his house midday to pray. He's hungry. He has friends down below preparing a meal. He falls into a trance, and many of you know the story of what happens. A big uh, sheet comes out of the sky, filled with all kinds of birds and fish and wildlife and that kind of thing. And uh, <clears throat> the voice comes to uh, Peter from heaven saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat, right? So Peter has a dream. He's hungry. Here's a sheet of delicious food. Because this is unclean food. So if you know, 
It's oysters. It's shrimp. It's crab. It's bacon. It's spare ribs. It's perfection, right? So unless you're a vegetarian, that's a different sermon. But for now, he loves this. I love this. But Peter, what's Peter's response? No way. I'm n- never. Why? He says, I will never eat anything unclean. What's going on? Here's the thing. Is Peter a Christ follower? Yes. But he's a Christ follower in a clan uh, from really essentially the nation of Israel, right? So in that clan, following Christ is equivalent and synonymous with following the law of God. Are you with me? So we follow the law. What law? The Old Testament law. Oh, and what does it say in the Old Testament? It says there's clean meat and unclean meat. And, and, and if you're Jewish, you can eat the clean meat, but not the unclean meat. And this meat that comes down in the, in the sheet is unclean. So Peter's like this. This is against the law? No. And then what does God say? God says, hey, listen, buddy, my paraphrase, what God has declared clean no longer to call what? Unclean. So God is saying to Peter, I know you love me. I know you're saved. I know you're in the family, but I'm calling you to move. Watch this. Call to move away from your culturally defined understanding of who I am into a broader expression of the gospel. And we're going we're gonna to start that process by me telling you that the law of the Old Testament is no longer going to govern the people of God. No longer. So the law was conformity to this kind of single culture. There's clean and unclean. There's stuff about circumcision. There's stuff about clothing you can wear. There's stuff about tattoos. There's stuff about women in worship, forbidden, let alone in ministry, right? So there's a whole construct culturally. Peter comes to Christ in that construct. And then in this vision... When God says, look, you're not bound by that construct anymore, Peter says, oh, yes, I am, to God. Therefore, the dream doesn't happen once or twice, but what? Three times he has a dream. God's wearing him down, right? Some of you are spouses in the room, you know this trick. You want something, you want something, and then you're like this. Hey, could we watch uh, the whole Mariner game? That's out nine innings in a long time. No, yeah, I know, but it, you know, it'll be over by four or so, and then we can do the chores. Yeah, I'd rather get the chores out of the way first. No, 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 you know, I'll be thinking about the game too much. Let's watch the game first. Once, no, twice, maybe, third time. You know you're going to get what you want. Why don't you just tell me the first, you know, and then I wear, I wear her down, and then that two-hour thing is seven hours, <laughs> and depression, and I still have chores waiting for me when I get home. God, in a sense, wears Peter down, right? It's like, eat the meat. No, I'm telling you, eat the meat. Really? Yes, eat the meat. And then he does, and this begins the movement because the point isn't the meat. The point is this. God is going to explode Peter's prejudices by showing him that the gospel will no longer be culturally confined to a particular people. The gospel is now going to be malleable enough to include uh, uh, a a centurion 
And then, you know, as we fast forward through history, it's going to include, you know, Celtic Druids, and it's going to include, you know, the warring hordes invading Rome from the north, and it's going to include Germans, and it's going to include Rwandese, and Ugandans, and it's going to include Tutsis, and Hutu, and black, and white, and rich, and poor, and Republican, and Democrat, and homeless, and people living in mansions with four homes. Yes, it's that generous. And they're all the people of God, but we're called not just to, to, to live and let live. I'm going to propel you into a relationship with people unlike you, so that in a world defined by tribalism, you, the church, will testify of something different. That God breaks down walls, not builds walls. That's your calling, my calling, our calling. But it begins with kind of revelation, and then that revelation needs to propel us into proximity in new relationships, and here's why. Revelation plus proximity equals transformation. And that's important enough that I want you to say that with me. Revelation plus proximity is transformation, right? I need revelation from Christ, but the revelation I get from Christ, watch this, is going to propel me into relationships with people not like me. That'll happen. And so God will explode our prejudices. And if we think we have none by now in our lives, we're kind of, Living in denial. And here's, here's why I say that. A major theme in the Bible is God confounding people who have walked with God many years by saying to them, oh, uh, you think you have the moral high ground in this moment? Let me tell you something, and then God does a thing. I'll give you a couple examples. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews. God's chosen people, right? Who are guardians of the temple, who worship in synagogues, who seek to obey the law. And what does God say to those people? Listen to this, Matthew 12. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it because they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah and someone greater than Jonah is here and you refuse to repent. The queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on the judgment day because she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Someone greater than Solomon is here and you're not listening. You're not listening. You're, you're not repenting. Are you the people of God? Yes. Are you chosen? Yes. Do you have a temple? Yes. Do you obey the Sabbath? Yes. Are you willing to move at all? No. <laughs> you think you've arrived. And that's the problem right there. And this goes on and on all through the Bible. The chosen people going, really, God? Really? You healed Naaman the Syrian of leprosy? Yeah, he had faith. You didn't. You, you, you honored the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who asked for healing for her child? And Jesus says, I'm sent to the house of Israel. And then the woman says, yeah, but look, even dogs get the scraps. Come on, literally, throw me a bone. And then Jesus says, look at her faith, everybody, to the Jewish people. And then he says, of the centurion soldier, the oppressor in Matthew 8, I have not seen this much faith in all of Israel. Shall I go on? Samaritan woman, John 4. Matthew, the tax collector. The woman caught in adultery. The Ethiopian eunuch. And I could go on and on and on. There's not enough time to show you all the ways in which if you think your particular expression of Christianity is the definite article, real one, think again. It's not. 
We need revelation that explodes our paradigm of having arrived and realize God is continually, in kind of this centrifugal way, pushing outward, 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 breaking down dividing walls, calling us to relationship with people different than we are. That's the gospel. That's discipleship. Moving from here to there. And of course, the problem is, we like it here. (laughs) And so what do we do? Well, historically... The people of God have either passively or actively been party to segregation. Because remember, revelation plus plus proximity equals transformation. So if I can uh, kind of cordon off proximity, all God's people get a revelation, and that revelation will swirl around in our heads but never transform us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually made exactly that complaint. Uh, seeing anti-Semitism in Germany, coming to America, seeing over-racism in America, and seeing that in both cases, the perpetrators either actively or passively were worshiping on Sunday. He was like this, how does this happen? And his conclusion was, uh, they're focused on revelation without any proximity. And in fact, not only are we focused on revelation without proximity, but historically, we've kind of uh, codified in law segregation to assure that there'll be no proximity. Let me give you one example. This is a map of my hometown, Fresno, California. Who's been there? Anybody? You probably haven't been there. You've probably driven through. Nobody stops, right? But it's my town, and I grew up there in the kind of green-yellow part and then uh, down at the bottom, at the diagonal, that's Highway 99, and it's also the railroad. And so, you know, if you want to know a little bit of history, here's what happened. This was settled by homesteaders and land speculators, and they developed this, the town around a railroad station. And from the beginning, the poorest residents and anyone who wasn't white was forced to live literally on the other side of the tracks, literally on the other side, the southwest corner of the of the map. At an 1873 town meeting, Fresno's white residents agreed not to rent, sell, or lease any land east of the railroad tracks to Chinese immigrants, many of whom built the very tracks that kept them off from the rest of Fresno, right? So this story kind of goes on. If we take a couple of quotes here, over the next 25 years, the city grew quickly, attracted Mexican, Japanese, Armenian, Italian immigrants who were also forced to live in the southwest of Fresno. In 1918, a California State Commission report titled Fresno's Immigration Problem said nearly all of the city's foreign-born, which really only means people of color, though all the whites were also, many of them were also foreign-born, right, uh, lived in the foreign quarter on the west side. That same year, Fresno's first-ever general plan formalized existing residential segregation. And then in the southern part of the city is where all the industrial stuff took place, right next door to the houses of people of color, right? So when I was in high school, uh, my first year of college, I worked in a steel factory every afternoon. And so I would drive, I would literally drive across the tracks to the other neighborhood and, you know, work in a steel factory. And this is where there's pollution. And this is where there's uh, uh, chemicals leaching into wells. And this is where everybody was forced for generations to live, not accumulating generational wealth you know, in any way at all. So that's kind of the backstory. Then we go on to the next and last slide. In North Fresno, average longevity, 90 years. 
in the Southwest, after redlining, 70 years. So a 20-year disparity in longevity and more concentrated poverty there than nearly anywhere else in America. And then sarcastically, Matthew Gendian uh, says, we've done a very good job at sectioning off the poor. We do that better than any other place in the country, not by accident. So Fresno is kind of the prototype of this thing called redlining that some of you know about. And I didn't know about it all until I read this article in the Atlantic Journal seven years ago or five years ago or whatever it was. I didn't know. I didn't know I grew up in a town like that. I didn't know. I did know that, uh, you know, we played, our high school football team played nine games and eight of them were against schools that were white and one was against a school populated by people of many different colors. That's, that's all I knew, right? But then uh, my dad, he taught down in the Southwest part. He was a school teacher who became a principal who became a superintendent. So he had lots of Hispanic friends, lots of Asian friends, lots of, lots of people of color friends who lived in that area. And I got to know some of them and... and Proximity and revelation leads to a little bit of transformation, right? So I had friends who I knew were hardworking, who I knew were, were intelligent, who I knew had integrity. And then I would go to other relatives of my extended family for a Thanksgiving meal or something, and I'd hear about a particular people group with a skin color. Oh, those lazy. Oh, those drunk. Oh, those violent. You know, and I want to tell you, as a kid, I got mad, and I, I got I got into some arguments with some of my relatives. I said, "Oh, wait a minute, no! I know I have friends. They're not drunk. They're not violent. They're not lazy. They're beautiful people." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You just wait. You just wait. You're young. You're young and idealistic. You just wait. And I, man, I was so mad because. I was like, you don't know these people. You don't know them. You, you, you have an image the way Peter had an image of a centurion soldier, right? Oppressor, violent, unjust taxation. I hate this guy. He could never know God. But he didn't know the whole story. And hear me, you never will without proximity. Do you understand? You never will without proximity. You've got to be in relationship. So, the good news is, Peter, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, pursues relationship. He goes, uh, um, these guys show up at his door. Hey, I'm paraphrasing now for time. Hey, we're here because Cornelius sent us and said that you would have a message for him from God. And then, and then Peter says, uh, he says, so... I got up and went. Now, let me just read this so you hear it directly. I'm beginning to read in verse 17. Peter's perplexed regarding his vision. And then the men come. They ask whether Simon called Peter was lodging there. The spirit said, hey, there's three guys looking for you downstairs. Go down, accompany them without hesitation. I've sent them. Peter went down. The men said, um, and he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, and this would blow Peter's mind, 
a centurion who is also upright, God-fearing, well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Boom. Next day he rose, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him other believers. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them. And when Cornelius saw, he bowed down and worshiped Peter. Peter says, verse 26, stand up. I'm also a man. And as he talked with them, he went around and found many persons gathered. And then is what Peter says. He says, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for me, a Jew, to associate with or visit. I can't even visit by law any person of any other nation. That's my worldview. But then, what does he say? God has shown me, Revelation, that I should not call any, and then I, there's a blank there. We're going to fill in a minute. I should not call any common or unclean. I should not call any what common or unclean? Any evangelical? No. Any Republican? No. I should call any person, any person, believer, unbeliever, rich, poor, gay, straight, black, white, homeless, four mansions, pacifist, own 18 guns. I should not call any person common or unclean. Where does that come from? You want to know? Genesis 1. Let's make humans how? In our, are you with me? <laughs> in our image. Who's an image bearer? You are. And the person sitting next to you too. Is the image marred? Sure. Is it sometimes, you know, layered over with, you know, politics and tribalism and greed and violence? Yeah, absolutely. But you're an image bearer. So this is a perfect example of revelation leading proximity. And I love this. What does Peter say? I came without objection. This means that the revelation of God was enough to propel him into proximity. And that's what's needed for us as well. Because we have the revelation. What's the revelation? Every dividing wall has been broken down, Ephesians 2. Every one. So uh, we all come from, you know, one blood, one family, all made in the image of God. There's no longer, therefore, Galatians 3, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And then the beauty of that is when I enter into proximity with someone, you know, of a different culture, their worldview in Christ begins to inform my worldview in Christ, and we move toward what Paul calls in Ephesians 4, uh, unity. In other words, I need uh, my Rwandan friends to teach me about forgiveness, I need my Nepali friends to teach me about prayer and, and dependency on God. I, I, I need my German friends uh, to teach me about kind of collective confession of, skin, of sin because they could have mowed Dachau down and instead, there it is with 200 third graders every day marching through. Why? So that we own it so that it never happens again. First John 1, confess your sins. I learned it in Germany. I learned it in Rwanda. I learned it in Costa Rica. I, I learned it in Uganda. I learned it in Nepal. I learned it in, in, in uh, Thailand. I learned it in Fresno. I learned it from Republicans. I learned it from Democrats. 
but only if there's no walls. Because as soon as you're offended by this message and you're like this, I'm going to a tribe that thinks like me. Then that's what you get. A tribe that thinks like you. But, but you're not moving toward unity. Really, really important that we see and open up and learn. We were in, um, we were, we were in Nepal many years ago. And, uh, you know, we, we, it was a long flight. It was still in an era when you could smoke on a plane. There was a smoking station in the back. And for, for whatever reason, they'd given my seat away. And so the only seat I got was in the back in the smoking session. And I don't, I've never smoked. I don't want to smoke. I don't like smoke. And, the, you know, the flight gets up to like 10,000 feet or whatever. And this is, I don't know, a 14-hour flight or something. And then the, the pilot comes on. Hey, it's time to smoke. Everybody, you know, lights up around me. I'm cursing why I'm on this trip at all. 14 hours of inhaling smoke. Land in Kathmandu, you know, pollution. Get in a van that's not built properly, and the carbon monoxide is feeding back into the, into the van, and I'm sitting in the back of the van, the smoking section again, you know. <laughs> then an eight-hour hike, you know, up into this little village where we're going to run a, med- a medical clinic. And I'm like this. I already hate these people. Like, I'm in a bad mood. I, I spent my own money to come here. And then... And, and then, they, where are we put up? In a, are you kidding me? We're in the barn. Like, there's animals below us, and then there's a little stair thing, and then there's hay, and we're sleeping on the hay. And our guest graciously brings us food that, this is very rural Nepal, food that is too hot even for our Nepali tour guide, who's from Kathmandu. And he apologized. He's like, we never spice it this much in Kathmandu. I'm so sorry. And then here's the news. Oh, hello. You can't drink the water because it will kill you. So my mouth is on fire. There's no water because I used it for eight hours hiking. And I'm like, what are we doing here, right? Well, here's what we're doing here. Uh, There's a medical clinic over the course of three days, we'll, our team from Bethany will treat 600 um, predominantly Hindu people in Jesus' name. As a result of that, the Hindu uh, leaders will meet with a pastor in a moment of reconciliation because they burned the church down three times. And, and the Hindu leaders will say, the grace and generosity of your Christian friends from Seattle is so powerful we promise never to burn your church down again because there's something in your gospel that's meaningful. And there was a reconciliation. And then um, while the medical clinic was going on one afternoon, <laughs> our host, we're up in that hayloft, you know, she comes to me and another friend. We're the only two non-doctors on the, on the team. And we'd spend our afternoons, you know, playing soccer with kids and stuff like that. She comes to us. She says, I need a, we need a uh, special prayer intervention for my cow. I said, for your cow? She said, yeah, it's not giving milk. And I, and I foolishly said, no doubt, uh, the, if there's a veterinarian around, 
we'll pay for that? Oh, no, there's no veterinarians here. You can't, no. There's nothing. There, watch this, watch this. There's nothing but prayer. Would you, would you pray for my cow? I have the oil. That's what she said. I have the oil, they, like for anointing. Would you pray for my cow? Man. You know, we go and we lay hands on this cow. We pray for this cow. I wish I could tell you I knew the end of that story, but I don't have enough faith to tell you because we left the next morning. But she, I can tell you this, she said, the cow's healed. I know it. Because of your prayers and your faith, the cow's healed. I'm a different human for that moment. And all that stuff that I was judging is just swept away because revelation's never enough. Revelation and proximity is what leads to transformation. So, you know, as we close this morning, here's the word. This moment in history right now, the world's on fire. It's more tribal than I'm aware of at any time in my life. It's been this way before in history, but in my life, you know, more tribal than I've seen. And not getting better. Not getting better. And uh, hear me, the church isn't immune to this polarizing and tribalism is occurring. As we withdraw into kind of our self-referential communities that look like us, spend like us, vote like us, think like us, root for the same, you know, political team as us. And you know what Jesus says about that? No. No. God has shown me I should never call anyone unclean because God's doing a work of reconciliation. Start on the cross and is working out today. Are we in that story? So here's your challenge for the moment. Some of us need more revelation. We're not even yet convinced that the dividing wall is broken down. We might think that the best way to reach the world is to have everybody in kind of self-referential cultural communities that look exactly alike. Maybe we need revelation. Some of us have a lot of, lot of revelation. We went to seminary. <laughs> we need proximity. But proximity without revelation is tribalism. And revelation without proximity is dead theology. So where is God speaking to you today? And what's your next step? That's your moment of challenge as I lead us in prayer before we close. Father, uh, thank you for Peter and his willingness after having been a, somewhat of a fearful man on the night of your arrest. Thank you for his willingness to you know, step out of the boat and engage, not only engage Cornelius, but go home and say to everybody, hey, the Holy Spirit is with the Gentiles and, and face that resistance that came from God's people. Thank you for that moment. And thank you, God, for your relentless persistence, not only of Peter, but of the whole church in the next five chapters as they wrestle with, you know, who are the people of God anyway? What do they have to do and be and believe to be the people of God? We wrestle with it too. 
And thank you for your patience and persistence with us. But make us teachable even now. May we take next steps for your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.